0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Better Movement Podcast. This is Todd Hargrove. This podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to show your support, you can become a subscriber at toddhargrove.substack.com. My guest on the podcast today is Rob Gray. Rob is one of the most prominent and interesting voices on social media talking about motor learning Especially as applied to coaching sports like baseball, soccer, and tennis. I've been following Rob's uh, research for years, as well as his very excellent Perception and Action podcast, where he's talking about how psycho, uh, psychological research can be applied to improving sport performance. Rob is an associate professor and undergraduate program chair in human systems engineering in the Polytechnic School at Arizona State University. And just last week, he released an excellent new book summarizing his ideas. It's called How We Learn to Move, A a Revolution in the Way We Coach and Practice Sports Skills. I was able to read the whole thing before the podcast and talk with Rob in detail about it. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. I could have talked uh, with Rob for hours, but we went maybe about an hour and a half talking about all things related to motor learning, including concepts like variability and attractors and self-organization and Bernstein and ecological psychology and why I'm no good at golf and why Albert Puyols couldn't hit off of an under, uh, underhand softball pitcher. So I highly recommend this conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for coming on my podcast.
1: My pleasure, Todd. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, sure thing. So uh, before we get started, why don't you tell everyone uh, what you do, what you study, how you got interested in doing and studying those things? Yeah, so
1: so I'm a professor at Arizona State University, and you know, I've been studying kind of um, motor learning and motor control for over 25 years now or so. Um, I, I start off, you know, very, pretty basic psychology getting interested in vision, how people use vision to control their actions. And over the years, I've really had a pull towards using in more applied settings. So I've worked on driving safety. I worked for Nissan for a little bit. I've worked with the U.S. Air Force with pilots. But my true passion is sports, (laughs) understanding sports skill. And so now, along with doing research and publishing, I do a lot of consulting with sports teams, kind of looking at coach education and practice design. So walking around practices and mostly asking why, why are you doing that? Um, What, what could we do different? So, so it's really fun. It's a really fun job I have and I really enjoy it a lot.
0: And you've got a great new book that just came out. I didn't even know this was coming out. I had (laughs) you on the podcast and then it came out just about four days ago. I got it. I read it. It's great. Everyone should get it. Can you remind me of the title? It's how we
1: How we learn to move.
0: How we learn uh, to move. Great title. Sums it all (laughs) up. There's great information. I recommend to anyone out there who wants to learn how to move better, wants to know how motor control works, motor learning works. You're an athlete, you're a coach. Get the book without a doubt. Uh, You start off the book with uh, a great story which is kind of it resonates with my experience where you're walking around town and looking at fields of kids playing soccer and you're seeing some cones there and seeing the kids kind of lined up and and you're asking why are they doing it that way and you have some concerns tell us about uh the way you see you know your average soccer practice going for the for young kids and how you think that it could be going better Yeah, there's a few things here, and one of it is kind of it got exacerbated kind
1: of recently with you know, with you know so much with emphasis on what we can do at home by ourselves, you know, because of COVID and things. So so kids spend. I get so many questions from people, you know, how do I train for soccer when I'm just by myself with a ball, which is very challenging. It's hard to train for a team sport with you just by yourself. So I kids we try to give them some ideas, and then they finally get to practice. Very limited practice time. And with the chance to interact with all the other players and teammates and the coach has them play by themselves <laughs> dribbling around the cone. But, so it's very, very frustrating. And it's kind of, it, that's an easy one to pick on. A lot of us pick on the cones in soccer because it really is a good example of this idea that we need to break a skill into pieces and learn the quote-unquote fundamentals before we can actually play it. So we have to learn how to dribble before we can play soccer. And the way that we do that is breaking it down to basics and, and learning the correct way to do it through re- repeating it over and over. And that kind of basic idea has dominated learning for a long time. And I think it has a lot of, not only do I really believe it's not the best way to do things, but I think it makes things boring. If kids can't grasp these basic things, they, they move away from a sport because they think they're uncoordinated. So I think it has kind of far reaching that little active dribbling around the cones is kind of representative of some major problems with, with youth sports in, in my view.
0: Yeah. It's an example of what you call uh part practice, breaking <laughs> down the whole complex thing into a bunch of, you know, manageable parts and training those in relative isolation. And then thinking that when you put all those parts together, they'll yeah. add up to something that's as big as the whole, but the whole is greater than the sum <laughs> of its parts. And you recommend, uh representative practice or whole practice but you can't just throw kids into a complex game so how do you how do you do that how do you progress if you're not breaking down into pieces
1: yeah so what we try to do is is instead of like the word decomposition is is simplification so trying to keep the elements of the game there but simplifying it either you know in soccer by uh, a classic example is using small sided games so reducing the number of players the size of the space um There's a lot of great research in other sports uh, showing, you know, futsal is a good example of this too, changing the ball you use to try to keeping the game elements there and in particular, keeping, you know, I talk a lot about perception, action, coupling, <laughs> but keeping the, your actions driven by information from your environment. Um, you know we can do the make the skill easier easier and more manageable you definitely need to do that it's not we're definitely I'm not uh, advocating throwing people right into the actual sport in its full level yeah uh, full speeds and number of players you need to do something right to to challenge a person at the right level but I think breaking it apart into the pieces is the wrong way to do that for
0: sure I think it's kind of interesting that you know we're talking about you know, representative practice. You want the practice to kind of look like the game, but in some ways there's certain types of practice that are actually different from the game that might be more effective forms of practice. Like a small sided game might be a better way to practice for large field games than doing the large field game itself, or maybe futsal. Do you think futsal is like, let's say we had like a futsal culture here as opposed to a soccer culture and people spend a lot more time playing futsal. Do you think that would produce better players?
1: For sure, yeah. Some part of the challenge when you play the full game is you don't get many opportunities to experience. Like soccer is a great example. You know, the size of the field and the number of players is like you. You live. You have your own apartment <laughs> around you. You have so much space, so you don't get much experience on how to you interact with other players, how your movement causes or opponents to move, and how your teammates move together. So, yeah, sometimes reducing things can give you just a player the word I like to use is amplify the information and the situations that they're going to come up rarely in the game. And when you yeah. do, you need to know what you do. And now we're giving you much more opportunity to experience that and be ready for it by changing yeah. the game. Yeah. And I think that's a porn point about rep- representative doesn't mean it has to be the same as the game in every way, just some key elements there. I do lots of crazy things where I make baseball pitchers, for example, hold a ball under their arm while they're throwing, which they'll never do in a game. But I'm doing it for a purpose, right? Trying to kind of give them this this information, amplify something about their movement that they can hopefully put back into the game when they play it.
0: Yeah. So when you're talking about um, uh, the information that you want the players to be responding to and coordinating their actions with in a soccer game, what kinds of information is that, and and how is it similar to maybe other invasion-based games or games of of tag? And you're looking for information about open spaces and the movements of players, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So it's, yeah, the both the movement of the your opponent and players, the changes in space. Uh, there's a lot of great work on looking, you know, the interpersonal distance information, how you know good players you can keep it there's a certain point it breaks down and you cause, you know, a person to try to steal the ball from you. You can create a scoring opportunity. But the key, the key point for me is, you know, and back to the cones is all movements are, are functional. Like dribbling around dribbling is functional movement. Agility is functional. I go left. Cause you come at me to the right. Right. And that's, it's key to me that that has to be there. When you practice, there's no functionality in a cone. The only reason you go left around is the coach told you right? there's no natural the word we use in affordance that if, in Gibson. there's nothing opportunity it creates for me and in my environment. It's just an artificial I call it fake agility <laughs> going around cones or ladders, right? So yeah, these information sources are mainly in spaces and gaps and you know with, between players.
0: Yeah, yeah, I had a, uh, a basketball hoop in my uh, uh, driveway growing up. And uh, you know, I would uh, engage in a lot of shooting, a lot of dribbling, dribbling between the legs, dribbling behind the back. Uh, no one's around. I'm just doing all this <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff by yeah. myself. And if you just watched me doing those things, I might be able to convince you that I'm a reasonably capable basketball player. But I can remember going on, you know, getting into team environments uh, and trying to execute those skills in this kind of chaotic environment. And it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. The skills are sure. not happening. I'm freezing up. I'm not perceiving the distances between me and other players and how quickly they're closing them down and when I can relax and when I need to panic. And yeah. it was all panic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that, that's, a, that's a very common thing. I think a lot of coaches have experienced some, someone with a great technical skills by themselves that you put them in the game and they, they don't know what to do with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But but I don't but th- those skills wouldn't be completely uh useless. Let me let me give you this uh, weird hypothetical. I was wondering how you might re- respond to this. Let's imagine some someone who um, for some reason they're involved in the sport of cone dribbling. There's let's imagine mm-hmm. that there's some sort of sport of choreographed cone dribbling and they get awarded points for how fast they can navigate cones while dribbling. Uh maybe they're also Uh, getting judged by coaches on how well they can execute choreographed fake -hmm. agility moves like step over moves and bicycle moves and stuff like that or maybe how well they can do juggling maneuvers or how well they could hit targets with the ball from a distance now they build up a certain amount of skills doing that let's call it a sport how well prepared would they be to enter into like high school soccer. Or something. let's say someone's awesome at doing all of this stuff, mm-hmm. but they've never been in a real game. How far, you know, talk about, imagine how this person is. Learn a <laughs> yeah, word. the bulk
1: of our evidence says not very well, right? They would, they would still have to practice actual soccer. Um, you know, the bulk of the evidence on transfer of training is that it really has to be specific to what, Um, the skill you want to transfer to. And the the example I always like to use and I talk about in the book is um, Albert Pujols versus Jenny Finch. So Jenny Finch was a softball pitcher who went around and she became a broadcaster. She went around and pitched against major league players. And Albert Pujols at the time was an all-star best. And he, she pitched three pitches to him. He could not get the bat on the ball. So how could someone that has all these quote-unquote hitting skills not hit a ball just because it was a little closer and a little bigger, right. That it seems preposterous, right. You know, he has all the basic things you would think there, but it's kind of evidence of how specific transfer is. So, yeah. So I think, you know, it might help them learn, you know, maybe there would be some, um, gives them some base. If they keep practicing soccer, maybe they would acquire it faster, but I still think they would have to do lots of practice of knowing how to pass, where to pass, you know, when to pass, how to shoot and, and things like that for sure.
0: Yeah. You mentioned, it reminds me of the concept that you mentioned, which I liked in your book of a donor sport, donor mm-hmm. sport being a sport that would give you a good, uh, doing one sport that would give you a good preparation for another. Now I imagine being a baseball, uh, a major league baseball player would be a good donor sport for being a, you know, hitting against uh, uh, softball players and you mentioned that parkour would be a good donor sport, I think for soccer. Can you explain what the concept of a donor sport and why parkour? Yeah, is that's
1: the idea that uh, a few people have put up a for, a for, and it's, it's kind of a new idea. I think, it, you know, it still remains to be protested whether it actually does uh, demonstrate, but the idea is, um, you know, what we want is a couple of things in, in the, your sport you're going to donate is one, it has, you know, the term uses shared affordances. So, um, You know parkour is about using space so knowing where you can jump and when you can't soccer is about like we just talked about space so there's some similarities in that the type of information Um, the other thing i think is for me is really important for kind of a sport that could help you in your main sport is one that kind of gives you a bit more the term body awareness so um, a lot of the sports we do, we don't really get a good... I was like this, I was an ice hockey player from I'm from Canada. And so I had no idea what my body was doing. So sometimes when a coach would try to give instruction... Uh, what do you mean keep your hips i don't know what my hips are doing um so i think sports like gymnastics uh, you know parkour you know figure skating yoga all these kind of things that focus a bit more on awareness i think for me that like that diving is another one that could really help an athlete so so that's a basic idea it has some parts to it that will don't you still going to have to train a ton in your your main sport but it's going to give you some some things that will kind of help you build on i guess is the way to put it
0: You know, when you mentioned that body awareness, that was something that I was interested by in your book, but also a little bit confused. The awareness that you're talking about is that kind of like an uh, uh, an explicit verbalized, you know, your ability to verbalize, like uh, my hips are bent at ninety degrees or something like that. That's something that dancers are really good at. you, You get asked dancers for for body awareness. You can say, "Do a pelvic tilt for me." They can do a pelvic tilt. A lot of athletes, like a hockey player they don't have that kind of explicit verbalizable awareness that you can talk to them, but they could do the task and hit the Mm -hmm. positions in an implicit way. So they, they kind of have this contextual embedded kind of awareness that's functional, but it wouldn't be like a generalizable skill that could be made explicit. Am I on the wrong track there? No,
1: you're exactly right. Yeah. Probably that awareness might not be the best word It's kind of what people use. And, but I agree. It's, I'm thinking of it in more implicit terms and specifically You know, becoming sensitive or the word we might use is attuned to the information from your your proprioceptive. You know, you have tons of information from your tendons, your joints, about your body position. We're just, we don't pay attention to it really because we don't need it most of the time. We're so visual creatures. We don't have to really learn to pick that up. And I think certain sport, other sports can get you kind of the, you know, so you're more sensitive to that information and can use it as well. So, you know, the example I was given yoga is when you try to stand on one foot, like a tree pose in yoga, if you first start and close your eyes, most people at very least wobble. Some people fall over, but as you practice, you can do that easily because you can use other information. Uh, You don't need to solely rely on vision. Yeah. But, and I think that's all implicit. It's not really explicit. I I'm picking, I'm bending my knee this amount now.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I understand. Uh, let's talk about, uh, tennis a little bit. That's sport. another sport that, I that I really like. Uh, you have some discussions of, you know, some recommend, some, some ideas about the ways we could improve the way kids learn how to play tennis. T- tell us about some common mistakes you see there and uh, some ways to make improvements.
1: Yeah, there's a really some really great work on this by um, Tim Buzzard and colleagues from Damien Farrow in, in Australia. And the basic idea is, you know, with a regular size racket and a ball, you know, the ball bounces so high that kids, you know, struggle to make, you know, an effective tennis stroke. It's not kind of... And so the way that we solve that problem typically is going back to the decomposition. Let's have a coach just underhand toss them the ball so it doesn't bounce as high. And what the, these research have shown is, is that if we scale things down, so we use lower compression balls, we use smaller rackets, what happens is the kids kind of can play the ball more effectively. They can make hit the ball in front of them instead of behind them. They do kind of more the rainbow stroke, forehand stroke that you want. So kind of these natural things emerge just by adjusting the equipment so more appropriately for them rather than trying to break the skill apart and, and make it So they can actually get in a rally and start playing um, with this different equipment.
0: Yeah. And it's, and it's more representative of the actual sport, more motivated, more fun too. Right. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. So it's kind of a win-win. I remember I was, you know, I was, uh, when I grew up, me and my brother loved balls and we played with balls from the time we were, you know, very, very young. And we kind of were like, we're naturals in most, uh, sports involving balls, you know, no no surprise Mm -hmm. since we, Played them all the time. Both of my girls did not like balls. Mm -hmm. And once I started like, you know, like throwing them a ball and that they like can't catch it, I was like, what is going on here? How come I can't teach them this kind of stuff? Uh, How do I make this even simpler? And it's like, you know, get a balloon.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And really scale yeah, so you're keep, you're keeping it again and keeping in there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Yeah, scale things down and there's yeah. been shown in basketball too, the hoop is so high for you know if you can lower the hoop and give kids a chance to to get to the ball to the hoop without having to put all of their body into it. Um it yeah. can it can back. So yeah, that seems to be a, a a a better way um the um you know to to do things than than trying to some of the ways that we do it in tennis.
0: Yeah. You mentioned you had this great example uh, in the book to illustrate uh, Bernstein's idea of the importance of variability and repetition without repetition. This is the idea that even when a great uh, performer is producing the same outcome over and over and over again, they're always using a slightly uh, different way to get the job done. And you mentioned Nadal talking about how he it's how he's getting the ball back and he's talking about how different every shot is even though mm-hmm. people think that this is some automatic metronomic thing that's happening every shot is is completely different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that quote. <laughs> it's it's a uh, it, 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 it did up, a lot of work for you. Yeah. No, yeah, it does. When I saw it I was like, ah. you know, perfect quote by a hugely successful athlete is uh, you know, because my dream uh, but yeah, no, it's a it's a great uh, emphasis of the you know the idea that you know there's the idea of you know being able to be successful by repeating the exact same movement every time is kind of what Bernstein wanted to shoot down. He, he said that would be that would work if the conditions weren't changing. But both externally, the surface you're playing on, the wind, the environment, and internally in terms of your fatigue. You know, traumas in your body from from working out and things like that are always changing. So you need to change, keep changing your solutions. Um, you yeah. know, not massively sometimes, but you know, it's you need to re, to repeat this a successful outcome. You need not to repeat your movement. Is kind of that that what that
0: means? Yeah, you've done a really good job clarifying for me some of my questions about variability. When I started learning more about variability, I understood, oh, it's not about repeating the same thing every time. Mm -hmm. Expert blacksmiths use a different pathway every time. Mm -hmm. Better players have more variability in what they're doing than other players. But then some questions start to arise. You know, there's different kinds of variability. There's the variability of the outcome versus the variability of what you do Mm -hmm. to get the outcome done. And then there's some things about your technique that are variable while others aren't. And then there's the question of, is more variability better in the technique or in the practice condition? Can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of variability that, you know, which kinds we want to increase, which kinds is maybe kind of like not too much, not too little, which kinds we want to reduce?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I really try. Sometimes you use that word, and we don't really specify what we mean exactly, right? And, uh, you know, the important point is everybody wants low variability of outcomes, <laughs> right? We want you consistently put the ball in the hoop or, or whatever, right? But the idea of that you, to do that, we got we have to have s- a significant amount of variability in your movements. What exactly is your elbow doing? How much is it bending? What? How much is your wrist rotating? And that's Bernstein's fundamental idea that we have to adapt our movement to keep producing the same outcome because our conditions are changing. And then linking that to practice design to get that, we need to have a significant amount of variability in practice, right? There's no way you're going to learn how to play different lies in golf. If we, if we train you on flat ground, (laughs) you had a million irons on flat ground at a driving range, how are you supposed to um, come up with these variants of your movement when the slope changes that, that, that kind of idea.
0: And even if you were performing, let's say the same exact task every single time, like you're, you're, you're not competing uh, in a golf tournament where you have to play on different lives. Let's just say you're at the driving range and you know, you're going to be in the same conditions every time you're not going to learn very well if there isn't variation in what you're doing because it's that trial and error process that allows you to discover what works and what doesn't
1: yeah exactly um i think that's you know the one the method uh, i kind of talk about a book in the book is differential learning like there's really something to be said by from you experiencing different combinations of your movement and and you're right i think you well, you begin to figure out one of the examples i like to give is in baseball batting um, when you go to a batting cage and you turn the speed up really high, you'll miss the ball. And you have no idea why <laughs> did I swing too early, too late, too high, too low, right? I don't know. It's, you, all you do is hear it hit the screen in the back. So you don't, even when you get some success, I've seen players, you know, how, why did that swing work? I don't know. I, but I think implicitly, if you give you lots of different combinations of variants, you, your body, okay. I know what that, what we need, the secret to getting the bat in the right place at the right time is this combination of things. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great point.
0: Yeah. And you used this excellent example of exploring this landscape. There's a, there's like this landscape of all the different ways that you can move mm. and you need to explore it and you need to go out there and find what solutions are going to work best for you and what uh, variability is kind of like going down different pathways. Yeah
1: yeah it's getting you to it's pushing you out and into the the to the landscape different parts you haven't been before and, and you know the coach kind of here have a look over here let's let's go hiking off this path we haven't gone before um yeah that that kind of idea
0: i really like that i that metaphor to me that just like goes a long way um also with with the it also helps me understand why um it's the player that needs to do their own ex- explorations. And if the coach just says, go exactly to this point, I want you to, to you know, walk right down this mm-hmm. road and then take a left here and then go there or there. There's a lot of problems with that. What are some of the problems with that?
1: Yeah, first, um, yeah, definitely the kind of, you know, sometimes we call it prescriptive instruction. I'm prescribing here's, yeah, and that's something, I, you know, I talk about it right at the start. The kind of traditional way of we learn is the coach is the instructor, They know the answer and you come to get it from them versus, you know, what we're trying to move to is coaches more designer and a guide. And so there's a few problems. One is that it's not embracing the individuality that, you know, there's lots of everyone has different things that are going to work better for them. A coach with only one way to do things is not going to take that into account. And it's really just, there's a bunch of evidence. It's really just not the way your body works, right? Your body, there's a bunch there's a really nice tennis study I talk about in, in the paper I really love where they tried to give people explicit instructions to, hey, in this next serve, bend your knees 20 degrees more or hit the ball 10 centimeters more in front of where you normally contact it. And they use motion tracking system to actually measure whether they could do it. And they couldn't at all you know implement these changes right these explicit changes so a coach telling you you know you need to bend your elbow more i think is very limiting um and it's really i think it's not you know getting the, to the best for you i think you you know you need to explore and find the best solution for yourself
0: yeah so everyone's by the way i think of it everyone's landscape is, is different mm-hmm. For sure, you know, if yeah. I go out and explore my landscape, there might be like a cliff in some place where that's not there for for someone else because yeah, it's my own unique body.
1: Yeah, for sure, and you know, but the tennis example I gave, you know, Nadal's going to have the speed and the technique to run around <laughs> and do a forehand if he really wants to, whereas you and I are probably going to have to do the backhand, right? <laughs> We're just going to have a limited, less uh, opportunity, you know, availability for actions. And it, so it's both in terms of a skill level, but yeah, I think just in general, we have different, through our experiences, we kind of shape this landscape of, of what we learn and, but also based on our own individual um constraints the word we use you know speed height agility things like that yeah
0: yeah, yeah and, and, and another thing let's imagine a coach actually could take you to what is actually the optimal movement solution for you and somehow like take you there let's say they do it by like what you mentioned in the, in the book the golf swing like a machine that could like cause mm-hmm. your body to go through exactly the right swing plane and get your hands in the right places so you're in some sense given The uh, in this very top-down, directive, controlled manner, you're given the solution. It's not the same thing as you finding that solution on your own and building it up in an organic, authentic way. So that you own the solution, then.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you you know how um, I think you also know not explicitly again, but you're you know how to make tweaks to it, right, And, and adjust it in for different. Um, you know, make it adaptable for sure. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be much evidence of just moving you through this ideal path is, um, in fact, the examples I talk about, I really love in the book is actually making you make huge errors, right? Amplifying things that are wrong about your movement seems to be better (laughs) than actually showing you the quote unquote right way because it's just giving your body information about more information and helping it find a, a good solution itself.
0: Yeah, it's a a huge learning experience to make mistakes. If you deny kids, and this is obviously true for much more than just sports, if you deny people the learning experience of making mistakes, Mm -hmm. they're not going to learn it as deeply as if they make those mistakes.
1: For sure. Yeah, I think that's something I think, you know, we really, really, you know, I try to emphasize a lot, you know, learning is messy, right? Um, You don't learn anything when you're perfect every time. Right? That's not when we learn. We learn when we do things wrong. And, and I think we really need to embrace that in practice and all things, you know, where there's kind of this model a lot. I know a lot of kids think there's a scout in the stands every practice, right, for a professional team or a college. So they're sometimes they're afraid of looking bad. But looking bad, like you said, is part it's a really major part of learning <laughs> making a big mistake. It really is beneficial to learning, and to take that away by you know not varying things or keeping them simple is kind of you know that's gonna look good, you're gonna have good performance, but it's not the best for learning in the long run
0: yeah so so we talk about the benefits of injecting some variability into practice yeah. uh. But, you know, there's kind of like an inherent variability to certain kinds of practice as well, right? I mean, if I'm just running along the road at the same pace for a long period of time, there's an inherent variability there because I'm always, because of the internal structure of my body and little errors that are always being made, there's always a little bit of variability happening. And Nadal said it too, you play tennis and let's say I do a drill where I'm just doing cross court forehands with the other guy. We're just hitting, we're trying to do it the exact same way every time. There's kind of an inherent variability there. Or you're always dealing with minor variations, so my question is: since there's inherent variability built into these activities, how much do we have to add in in, in practice? I mean, it's kind of like a not too much, not too little kind of a thing. Am I right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Todd. And it's a real you know. I think you know a couple. Of, you do need to take into account you know that inherent variability both from different sports and we see it across individuals like new learners have more variability they're they're less consistent than experts for sure and so we don't want to overwhelm you if you're just starting to play tennis or something with massive variations in shot lengths and speeds and things you're you're going to struggle because you're already bringing your own variability so yeah I think you want to balance you know start out with a small amount and and build from there Um, and then also, you know, I think you're right, you need to take into account in sports, right? The, the example I like to compare is running as a sprinter and running as an NFL running back. Obviously, the second one, as the actual game is going to have massive variability in how you run. You need a lot more adaptability versus sprinting, you don't, relatively, you don't need as much. So I think practice has to take that into account as well.
0: Yeah. When you go out to get in your sprinting contest, it's probably not too much chance. You're going to do a lot of zigzagging down. There. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you do, you're probably not going to win. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Bad idea. Bad idea. Yeah. Uh, let's talk more about variability. So there's the, uh, you know, Nadal's doing something a little bit different on every shot. So, so is Federer, but they're also doing something that's kind of the same on every shot, which is why Nadal always looks like Nadal every forehand he hits. He never hits a forehand that looks like, Federer's forehand, and everything he does is kind of recognizably him. So there's some invariant quality to each one of his strokes. What is that? Does that have something to do with the particular kinds of synergies that he uses? And, and can you tell us what synergies are?
1: Yeah, that that's a great, a great point. And there's some wonderful work I talk about in the book. It's called uh, Coordination Profiling that Wolfgang Schohorn and done where they basically do machine learning to train to recognize players uh like just so just motion tracking data from nadal can you train it to recognize him without i i I could do it i mean if you showed
0: me a silhouette of nadal hitting a forehand i would know that's. yeah you
1: and it turns out even with people non-famous you can do it easily right even three years later um you can even do it in in like decathletes if you train the system on Shot put, and then it can recognize them throwing a javelin, right? It's really amazing. yeah, oh, that's it's amazing, so cool, yeah, that is so cool. Which I kind of make the point if if there was just one correct way to do this, a skill that would be impossible. right there's no way to tell Federer and Nadal apart if there's one correct way to make a forehand. Or right? there's something different in the way they're doing it. So, so yeah, I think there's both. So I think yeah, I think there's you know the term that we use in in this kind of approach is attractors, right? There's certain um, you know, way specific ways, movement solutions that you develop to to you know generate force to control your balance um, that are kind of idiosyncratic, right that, that each player kind of uses. And the, the sy- idea of a synergy is kind of having, um, co- you know the way that you your in the Bernstein's terms degrees of freedom work together, right? So the way that your elbow and your shoulder work together. Right, so if your elbow is open, your your shoulders opening a bit too quickly, your elbow can slow it down a bit and kind of to get your the rack at the right place at the right time. So yeah, I think there's allowing people to come up with their own solutions. um, You see these kind of unique features, these kind of invariant properties are the same. And also, I think it's important to emphasize. There's invariant properties across all performers, right, too. We don't miss watch a video and say, I wonder if that person's playing tennis or baseball, (laughs) right? We know there's some properties of what a good tennis stroke looks like um, and and that has to be there if you really want to be a high-level player. Um, But it's just you got to let the other stuff go. (laughs) Let the other stuff be individual and variable.
0: Yeah. 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 So let me see if I got this right on synergy. So if I, if I'm throwing a ball, there's, you know, one time my uh, shoulder will do one thing. Another time my elbow will do another thing, but the relationship between the shoulder and the elbow might be kind of constant in some, some sort of relationship.
1: Yeah, what we find, and you know, and I've done a bunch of this in baseball. There's, there's, they're highly correlated, right? So they're working together. They're, um, they're, and the, the important thing about that too is it's it's online, right? It's while it's happening. There's no way that that could work pre-programmed ballistic movement, right? What's happening is online somehow your body's sensing. Oh, my shoulder's doing this thing. I need to compensate for it. Um, and that could be either some slight mistiming by you, you know, we're inconsistent creatures, so we need to or change in the environment, the wind picks up or something like that. So, yeah, yeah that that's the basic idea. Kind of online, you 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 see this relationship. They're working in synergy um, together to keep you on track to get your performance goal. Um, you
0: and, and and that what that that compensation is that what Bernstein called correcting errors. There's just not enough time for the for the brain to become aware of what's what's an error in that joint and then correct it. It's got to happen very locally. It's got to be a much more bottom up phenomenon.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the it, it, that's really a good example. Exactly, and it's a good example of the the self organization idea. And the, the now the, the example I like to use in the book and a lot of people use this, is a flock of birds, right? Uh flock, so your body's kind of doing like a flock of birds. <laughs> the bird turns right. This bird gets is getting too close to me, so I turn that way and it makes the other bird move. So they're organizing locally without having to send a thing up to your brain to analyze. There, you're right. There's no time to do yeah. that. It's kind of this local um self-organization of a system um to to, to to get with the goal, get what you want done. Yeah.
0: So a very simple local almost mindless reflexive rule of relationship between two individual elements in a very large system can add up to intelligent seemingly top-down controlled intelligent behavior of the whole.
1: Yes, exactly and the, the birds is a, you know just every bird trying to get away from their neighbor hitting them <laughs> right makes these crazy patterns you see them flying around the sky. It's a very simple, local using information and controlling your movements like yeah results in these incredible overall behaviors
0: you know, yeah sure. and when and when you continually practice and, and practice something and you're getting better at it part of the learning is the tuning of those local relationships to just get the job done better
1: for sure yeah and i think yeah it's uh you, you have developing these these synergies and these muscles working together for sure and um you know The Bernstein work, that's kind of one of the the highest levels of movement control you can get, as opposed to one of the earlier ones that he talks about is freezing degrees of freedom. So instead of my shoulder and elbow working together, I just don't use my elbow at all. I keep my arm straight. It just simplifies the problem of of moving for me. so, I don't have to worry about what my elbow is doing at all. um that's kind of an early solution for him, you know, and then, as you progress you 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 start bringing the elbow movement back in so you can get more different types of movement solutions and then getting things working together. so yeah, you need to learn all of these things to experience,
0: yeah. Yeah. So this is why novices tend to look stiff doing things like dancing and skiing mm-hmm. and golf. I'm I'm playing golf with a guy who's a good athlete. He's actually a baseball player. So I'm thinking that's kind of a donor sport for golf mm. in some ways, but he's out there golfing and he's kind of freezing his hips and he's not getting any, he's not getting mm-hmm. a pelvic rotation. And it's just like this type of emotion. And I assume he's trying to simplify all of these variables and just Deal with one of them at a time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's Bernstein's kind of exactly what his idea is to do. You know, if you had to, the example sometimes I like to use in is volleyball. Like when you serve in volleyball, it's very common you start by doing a simple underhand serve where you just, or, or overhand where you're just rotating around your shoulder and you're doing nothing with your elbow and wrist. And it allows you to start playing, right? It's if you had to do a full jump serve and perfect that before you could start playing volleyball, I don't think many people would be playing volleyball, right? That, that needs, you need to build to that. Yeah. 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 All those things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, I wanted to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about this question I had, I was thinking about tennis and I was wondering what you might think about imitating other people's uh, form to become a better player. Now, on the one hand, uh, I think you would agree with me that it's it, it can be a bad idea to try to imitate someone else's form because the optimal solution for them uh, is not necessarily the optimal solution for you. On the other hand, there's a lot of visual info. When you just kind of look at someone's form, there's a lot of visual information there. And for me, I know it was kind of useful in finding and getting in the right part of my landscape. Just to Just to kind of clarify this yeah. a little bit more. I started playing tennis in the, what was it, the early eighties. And around that time there was still kind of the Jimmy Connors technique being taught hit straight through the ball. Don't use mm-hmm. your wrist. You know, this is before the Swedes started brushing up in the ball <laughs> and in the modern stroke and hitting big topspin shots. But we, but we kids were watching, you know, we weren't listening to the coaches. We were imitating what the good players do. So we saw Bjorn Borg. We saw Mats Vila we were imitating, mm-hmm. uh, not what our coaches were showing us, But what the what the good players were doing, and that kind of helped me kind of direct myself to the right part of the landscape. What do you think about imitation?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a great. I think you know sometimes it gets lumped in with observational learning, so learning by watching others. Yeah, I think I love the way you put it. Like I think instead of picking up a detailed solution it's getting you to try out a different part of the the landscape right it's almost it's it's in a way you know in in differential learning you basically you're giving the athlete different positions like try hitting with your stance wide this time now narrow now keep your arm in you're, you get you're kind of doing the similar thing to what imitation would give you you're you're gonna, you in a different place to try different things and and try to to, to move in that way so yeah i, I think it, it can be very advantageous and um obviously and i think there's observational learning research shows that people can kind of pick up these this information like the temporal information about movements that's kind of not something explicit so i think yeah i think it's a very useful uh thing to be doing
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. The now some people are better at imitating than others, but there's but there's like an indescribable quality Mm -hmm. that you can observe and maybe imitate that you'd never be able to describe or prescribe to someone else.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think we are. We pick up these things. You're right that that's we're going back to like recognizing the doll. There's something we can. There's obviously things we could describe, but there's kind of other things too. I think we pick up. And we can, we can, tr- we can bring them on board for our us to try that. We maybe not even be able to describe.
0: Yeah. So I've been uh, trying to learn how to play golf in the last year and, and uh, I've been uh, out there, you know, I hadn't played much golf at all until well COVID hit. And I'm like, now I'm going to, now I'm going to play some golf. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, you know, I get obsessive about things. So I'm, I'm out there at the driving range quite frequently playing with some guys that are out there on the course much more frequently
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: you know, they're not motor learning geeks like me. So they don't have the advantage of like applying some of your uh, ideas, but they're playing on the course. So they're kind of like in a better ly- learning environment, according to, because they're, mm-hmm. they've got all this variability, every lie is mm-hmm. different. So in a way they're learning faster. So when I go to the course, I'm hitting the same goddamn shot off the mat every single time. So what <laughs> yeah. I, what I'm doing is trying to emulate some variability in the course a little bit. One time I'll stand in just the wrong stance Mm-hmm. really open stance sometimes really closed stance just put the ball in a bunch of different places put my hands in different places in the grip even in ways that i know um, maybe maybe not going to use in the course but i mm-hmm. think of it as just like exploring the space of different swings i'm still i'm not in by any means an expert i'm kind of an intermediate but i'm still in that exploratory stage at some point if I got better and better and better, I would I would think that I'm going to engage in less variation around this kind of stuff. What do you think? Is there kind of like a, a, a does it, does the amount of variation in your practice depend on your expertise?
1: Um, I think so. I think the type of maybe the the what you're focusing on, um, you know, I think it gets more focused on specific things you want to work on rather than kind of broad. Um, but yeah, I really like that example. It, it reminds something I call. Uh, adjustability versus adaptability. So the traditional way we teach you is here's the way to swing a golf club. Now adjust it for downhill lie. Dust it for out of the sand versus adaptability Here's a movement problem. Try try swinging the golf club with both your feet together. You're never going to really have to do that, but we're teaching you to solve movement problems and how to adjust your movements based on. And the idea that you can once you learn that, you can just do that with any kind of situation you might face. So you don't learn to need to learn these specific solutions to these specific events you might face in golf when you when you come up. You're learning adaptable. So I, I do like that. But yeah, I think you know the athletes that I work with, it just becomes more focused around specific, you know, things they're trying to work on and uh, still varying things, you know, uh, but, but less of the kind of broad exploration of the space. <laughs> I think they figured out um, and more about trying they've to- They've been around to, the space.
0: They've explored it. Yeah. yeah, they've
1: yeah and, and, you know, I think, you know, Bernstein and, and Carl Newell talk, the, the these kind of distinct stages where you just have to find the coordination solution, then you're trying to optimize it and parameterize it. I think a lot, with that, you're right. I think you need less variability in your practice, or of that type, anyway.
0: Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the uh, the specific example you talked about in your book, where you were improving the mechanics of a pitcher by getting them to land on sand. Because I thought that was kind of interesting you know, who I remember? Yeah, them? exactly. Remember.
1: Yeah. There's a couple examples of this that, you know, that sometimes it's called the method of amplification of errors, right? So, so, it, and I think we can link it back to the soccer stuff too, is the, so one, well sometimes we get pitchers that they don't, they don't land quite square on their foot, their front foot, which can, which can lead to knee injuries and doesn't, um, you know, your body, you actually won't throw as hard, um, um, I always say whose phrase I like to use is: "If you don't have a good a deceleration plan, your body's not going to let you accelerate. Like your body's got all these protective mechanisms. If you're not going to stop properly, it's not going to let you speed up as fast as it, it can." So, so the idea is that pitchers they barely notice this, but if you put it them in sand, that actually makes it worse. They actually start to fall over, um, and and so. What we do, that's an example of something called a constraints led approach in coaching. So we're adding a difference in a practice environment to make your existing solution not work. Right. So sometimes part of this exploration thing that a coach can do is I want you to try something else. And the way that I'm gonna do it is I'm gonna take away what you do now. Right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna and I'm gonna give you and kind of amplify the information again, like we are talking about in software but I'm going to take away what you're doing now and force you to try something else. I'm not going to tell you. So we never tell the pitcher, try to bend your knee more or do anything. Just take away what you're using now so you have to try to find something else.
0: Yeah, and and, and this, uh, people, people, probably all coaches uh, use this type of a method or have been exposed to different uses of mm-hmm. this type of method, even if they don't know how to name it or the way to think about it. I remember seeing a study recently that used the constraints-based learning for uh, teaching people Olympic lifting. So in teaching, instead of Mm -hmm. saying, you know, keep the bar closer to your body, if it's drifting out too far away, you just put something there and take that solution away and just, Mm -hmm. and then, then they'll kind of have to move in the right direction.
1: Yeah. 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 And then, and like the small side of games is, you know, we're taking away your ability to hang out and play with the ball away from people you're you know we're taking that away from you they're going to be on top of you all the time right and, and when we put you in a tight space so, so the, yeah that kind of idea
0: yeah yeah it takes away all kinds of stuff that my teammates are doing too much of and I wish it's not doing it but, uh, but, <laughs> yeah yeah
1: uh, and a the, the great example another example I, I I think I linked to the I just I saw uh uh Djokovic doing this um in tennis um what he was doing was playing a game of tennis against someone else where instead of playing normal tennis, you had to hit the ball on your side and bounce it over. So you had to hit the ball into the ground. So what that was doing to me, you can't use power anymore to beat a player when you have to do that, right? He has to hit it. What you have to do is shot placement and strategy. Like, so he's taking away his power to beat someone by constraining, you know, taking away a solution, which I thought was really clever way of of practicing. So yeah, there's lots of really, and and one of the things I love about these different views is it's way more fun, like all these fun. I was was about to say, that just sounds
0: fun, right? I mean, that's part of that, it's just fun. I mean, I've got something uh, that I've always been kind of interested in is whenever you look at anyone who's at the top of their field, at least a lot of them who are at the top of their field in their sport, they can show you some weird, fun tricks that they can do with their racket or their golf club that got nothing to do with their sport at all. And they can always sure. do it like dribble two basketballs at the same time, hit mm-hmm. golf balls out of the air, the juggling in the soccer. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it's
1: kind of, I think it just comes naturally. And, you know, and going back, you know, kids kind of do this naturally too. You know, we used to, I'm at least I play hockey when I grew up and sometimes at the boat, there wouldn't be a goalie for both teams. So we'd have to make a rule. Ah, uh, somehow constrain it because just shooting into an empty net was too easy. So you turn the net around, or you have to shoot to hit the crossbar, or we come up with all these variants of, of the sport. So I think sometimes these kind of things people learn come out of just having to be creative with what you have in 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 your mind. You don't have the perfect setup to play your yeah. sport, so you come up with something creative. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, you look at the uh, the the cultures where the most creative best athletes come from. It's very often an unstructured, unregimented culture where the rules of the game and the condition for practice are the emergent uh, results of just these creative environments, like playing soccer in the street and playing, um, you know, basketball in the street or, or the Dominicans who play baseball by using bottle caps. That's teaching you mm. something that's not there, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You just, you sometimes these, yeah, I, I try to make that a point in the book. I think sometimes these things that we think are disadvantages or impoverished are actually advantages, right? You're giving, you're exposing to so much variability and creativity and, you know, there's a, you know, and so I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you you mentioned sometimes the traditional view of uh, motor learning and, um, um, you know, how you'd like to see things kind of move along towards your view that respects variability and, and, and kind of gets, gets rid of some of these myths. How much progress do you see there in the world of coaching? Which sports are making more progress than others? Yeah,
1: that, that's a great question, Todd. And I, I, I think we're, we, like we were talking about it, it's a bit hard to judge. I feel like sometimes, you know, it's really making a great progress because of the people around me. Um, but yeah, there's certain point, uh, baseball, that's the sport I work in, just happen to work in most, is really on board with this idea of, you know, it's a part and parcel with kind of this move movement away from the emphasis on talent identification to talent development, Right let's tr- try to take the players we drafted and see if we can make them better. Like, can we take a pitcher that throws only 85 and make them throw 90 something safely? Like, can we develop skill ourselves? So, and from that, there's just been a great interest in skill acquisition. And, and then I think they've got, in a lot of them are getting into these ideas of constraints and variability. And um, a lot of, <laughs> a lot, there was a lot of low hanging fruit too in baseball. It's so repetitive practice, you know, hitting off tees and, hitting off machines, throwing the same pitch every time. So baseball is one I think has really got soccer for, has been one for a long time that kind of, in some ways, (laughs) there's some things that are not so much uh, like the cones example, but yeah, I think it's starting to get a hold. Um, I think a lot of people are getting interested in these ideas and, you know, I, I know a lot of individual coaches that are starting to try it out and, in some of these things. So yeah, I, I think there's a movement. I, the word I use in the book is revolution. <laughs> I, I think there's a bit of a movement towards towards these ideas for sure.
0: Yeah. So you've got baseball. I mean, I can I know in golf, there's been big changes because the last time I was interested in golf, I think was the 90s. And I'd gotten some whatever books were available on golf and like technique, because I'm really a geek about this kind of thing. So I'd get books by David Ledbetter and uh, mm-hmm. and others. And at the time it was this very prescriptive, here's all the points and the checkpoints and the swing that you have to hit. This is what the good players do. You must be in this position. You must be in the other position. And then when I took it up uh, recently, I realized that there has been kind of a revolution. Anytime you read anything about golf technique, they'll start saying, Hey, look at this. This is uh, these are the top four players in the world at the top of their swing, noticing anything interesting there. They're <laughs> yeah. all doing different things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the idea is kind of like, there's some parts of the, um, I wonder what you think of this. There's some parts of the swing where you've got the option to be free and let it emerge and self-organize and do what you want. I'm not going to change that. There are other parts of the swing, which are kind of non-negotiable. And I do want you to look like the pros. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally believe that too. I think, you know, that's the, the the word I used before invariance. there's certain things that have to be there. It's just, know physics like if you're going to transfer force effectively you have to you know um, you know in, in in baseball pitching and things like that I work in you know at some point you need you need to shift shift force back and then you need to break your lower body right to transfer force up to your upper body you have to break you have to have good breaks on your lower body so you get the rotational Uh, kind of energy going. So yeah, there's these kind of fundamental, you know, sometimes people would call them attractors too, that have to be there. Um, And also, I think at the same time, there's also ones, uh, and this is kind of, sometimes this kind of new approach is is thought of as just completely hands-off coaching. You just let them do, figure it out, whatever they want, which I, I think we're making the point here. It's not right. There's coach still has to step in and say, no, you need, that's not going to work. <laughs> and the, the, the same point is with injury too. I think we can still set in and say, well, that's maybe is working for you, but that you're going to get hurt if you keep doing that over the long run. Um, you got to be careful with these kind of things. I'm not doing it too much, but there's yeah. still room for the coach as a guide, I think to, you know, okay, that's not a good path to go down. Let's yeah. maybe explore this one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Self-organization is a powerful thing. If you just allow people to explore, they're going to figure out a lot of stuff on their own, but they're not going to figure out everything. Not everything self-organizes, mm-hmm. or if it does, it organizes into a suboptimal pattern. You still have to be getting people to explore parts of the landscape they might be neglecting. And, and some of those parts are really not obvious, right? I mean, I think with running, people self-organize pretty well. And the, most people, if you just put in the miles they're going to find the uh, the right movement patterns for them, maybe without that much instruction at all, right? Because yeah. the body is kind of innately going to be attracted to the right ways to run. I think there's some other sports that are not natural with scare quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, ex, the, the guidance from the coach is that more important. I think like, for example, for whatever reason – Maybe it's just me. A baseball swing's kind of natural. There's something about a golf swing that's not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I think we, you know, yeah. Baseball, I guess I think it's because it's driven. You know, you have this, it's more reactive. Golf st- hitting things that just sitting there is it's is not weird. natural. It's not that na- and that's what you
0: know what I think. Yeah. This 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 happens to me all the time. When I'm feeling I'm standing over the ball, I'm st- mm-hmm. just standing there too long. I'm feeling, oh my God, what am I gonna do? This is not going to work. And then sometimes I just like walk up to it and happy Gilmore the ball <laughs> and I <crush> it. <laughs> yeah.
1: The um yeah, no I think that's a great point Todd. and the, the, the one of the examples I use in the book is swimming like um you know I I learned to swim in a lake as a kid and and so there was no um, demands for being efficient or super fast, or right? I just swimming to the dock to play. So later in my life, I started doing triathlons, and I I, I started taking lessons with the coach. And they are they're like, "What are you doing under when your head's underwater?" I'm like, "Nothing." And they are saying, "You know, you're supposed to let your breath out when you're underwater so that you can come again." I'm like, "I didn't know. I never like." So I kind of self-organized to things that work for what I needed. Um, and that's part of the thing you're talking about, like kind of we'll get local solutions that work for whatever the constraints happen to be. Whereas there might be a way better one that allows me to ride my bike better when I'm after, because I can use much less energy or use different muscles, but I didn't have the kind of pressure of that when I was learning to swim. So yeah, I think that that's a good point.
0: Okay. Uh, maybe yeah. one other question here. I, You know, in the book you uh, you don't talk about the specific, um, uh, well, within in the, in the Bernstein tradition that you're you're trying to, to get across, there are some different schools of thought. There's the there's the dynamic systems theory, the ecological psychology, the non-linear pedagogy. I don't know enough to know the kind of differences between those two things. I'm just kind of like at a minimum of exposure to all of them. I see the commonalities, and you're writing about them. Is there any one of those traditions that you fall into more than the other? I'd What's the deal there?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, that's a great question. I think this is a kind of, not a cop-out, but a cop-out, all of them. (laughs) Yeah, I think think the the key that, you know, some the big term people are hearing it, it's really started by uh, people like Keith Davids, is ecological dynamics. Like combining uh, the, especially ecological psychology and dynamical systems. Dynamical systems can do a great job of describing Kind of how a system is changing and the information you're using in Troll, but it's sometimes it's lacking the goals and intentions and you know what you're trying to achieve in it, which ecological psychology brings in with with um, and a good a good example. I, there's some great work by a person named Brett Fagin who did the work on this. So like, so if I'm a defensive back running to tackle, um, you know, a, a, a player with the ball. Dynamical systems theory can perfectly describe the information that I use and how I move, and there's like a simple rule called the bear, it's a bearing angle. If I keep the angle between my runner and me um, at the same, I'm going to intercept them. But it, that simple dynamical systems description doesn't actually tell me am I going to intercept them before they get to the end zone or not, <laughs> right? So it's not actually goal, goal relevant, right? Or same with baseball, it, it, I can get to the ball, but it's not telling me whether it's going to be in front of me or behind me, right? So it's not telling me what the situation actually affords in terms of behavior. It's just a very kind of mechanical description in a way. So yeah, I think you kind of need all these pieces. And I, I, I tried to do that a little bit in the book by talking about both kind of attractors and affordances, for example. Um, okay. So the detractors
0: yeah. comes more from the DST and the affordances yes. is a little bit more. Yeah. I think they play really well together. I, in my book, I use all these terms and just kind of mm-hmm. lump them in together with, I, I think I tried to call this as uh, to me, to me, uh, kind of systems thinking or complex systems theory or respect for complexity kind of underlied a lot of these. Is that also a good way to kind of group them a little bit?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think uh, you, you recognize your body is a complex system, you know, that's kind of unpredictable interactions. And, you know, I, I think so. Yeah. That's ex- definitely one of the key kind of features uh, of, and that's where the nonlinear pedagogy comes into the idea that. We're not going to be able to predict the outcome of your training. It's not a deterministic system where if we train you this way, this outcome is going to happen. That's not how complex systems work. Uh, it's like raising yeah. kids is the example I was, you know, they, do, they don't- rocket
0: ships, my favorite analogy. This is what <laughs> got me. So I thought to me, I, when I heard this for the first time, I thought it was so profound. The difference between a complex and a complicated system- yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it reflected in the analogy of what's the difference between sending a rocket ship to the moon between and, and raising kids, mm-hmm. both kind of tough problems to solve, but totally different thinking processes. I think that we want to, whenever we see a tough problem, we want to use the same techniques we use to send rocket ships to the moon and program computers thinking that these are complicated systems when they're complex. And it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's the wrong approach. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think so too. I, I was talking to someone yesterday about why people hang on to this repetition idea. And I think it, it is, it's more, e- well, in some ways it's easier as a coach just to have people repeat. And it's just kind of say it feels more comfortable, <laughs> this idea rather than accepting this unpredictability of a complex system in embracing that, it's kind of scary in a way, right? It's, 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 you don't have the, the safety of, of knowing what's going to happen. It's a little more challenging for sure.
0: Well, I got, I got a tough question for you. Uh, Recognizing your good points on, um, you know, people making mistakes about the value of repetition. What about just kind of playing devil's advocate, the kinds of athletes like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, VJ Singh, Tiger Woods, that have a high tolerance for some boring repetition in their practice the kind of guy that goes i'm going to do go hit this exact same shot 50 times in a row until my hands bleed and i'm not going to leave those guys seem to be doing pretty well are they using the wrong approach could they be doing a better job if they uh weren't so kind of like in that mindset or is that actually not their mindset what do you think
1: yeah i think there's a you know there's a certain motivation like the, the that they have you know um, another example I'd throw, you know, S- S- Stephen Curry may be the opposite of all that, right? He's willing I was, to try. I was, I was to, wondering
0: if he was an example <laughs> yeah, of that.
1: He, he's almost the opposite. He seems to be willing to try anything, <laughs> right? He does the two-handed dribbling with the, the, sh- the strobe glasses and all these things. Um, so, yeah, I think overall that kind of motivation to keep at it and, and learn and things. Um, I would argue that, you know, strict repetition is not, valuable and, and Stephen Curry there was a there was a thing on Twitter a few months ago that showed him taking the same corner jump shot over and over and people were like well here's the you know repetition but then later he came out and said that's just how I kind of get up up for a game in actual practice I do all different shots and I actually do this thing where I do wind sprints between shots to get me tired used to keeping the same, you know, which is repetition without repetition. You're doing the same shot while you're fatigued. So I think there's probably some secrets <laughs> underlying these things. Um, um, Tiger is one of my favorite too because his the, it's a good example. His dad, you know, he had this thing he called Tiger Par. So he got Tiger on a golf course really early, but he just changed the par on all the holes. So instead of a par three, it was a par five for Tiger when he was first starting. So he was doing real golf. He was just scaling it. Like we said, yeah. he wasn't making them hit the same, but you're right. There there still is these, these you know, and, and sometimes people see it and jump on it. So, you know, it's hard to just shoot down anything when it's these great athletes, but I think it, there can be a more efficient use of your time for sure.
0: Yeah. In your book, uh, kind of towards the end, you talk about some interesting new uses of, I guess, doing what you were mentioning before, the constraints-based learning Taking away the solution, which isn't a good solution. Some of these involve technology. Some of these involve obscuring what you can see. Can you just tell us about some of those that you think are kind of interesting and might play a role in what we see in the future? Yeah, the yeah. So
1: I'm a big fan, and I've used it a fair amount is, is kind of, a use? yeah, occlusion. So one of the ones I talk about are these, This it's very simple technology called chin-up goggles. They're basically sports goggles with plastic on the bottom so you can't look down. So you cannot... Dribble, uh, you know, a puck or, or a basketball by looking down, right? If you, well, or if you are going to do that, you have to put your head right down and you won't be able to see anything in front of you. So, yeah, simple things taking uh, vision away, I think, is really um, a really useful thing. If you do it kind of in a purposeful way, there's also some great work on basketball where they made people – there's research showing, you know, if you use visual information right at the end of the shot, it's more effective. So and there's these people that were actually releasing the ball in front of their face, uh, and so there's this group in the Netherlands. They basically occluded their vision until their hands got above. They couldn't see the rim until their hands got above their eyes, and they kind of trained them that way um, with these kind of occlusion gases. So yeah, I think there's some really interesting. So I think that uh, that's a that was an important one for point to make for me too. The the way technology is typically used is the old-fashioned way. Here, how can we correct you towards the perfect way to do it versus you know, doing things that kind of either taking away things and getting you to explore other things is, is, I think it's a really important way to use it. And, um, you know, I I think, again, you need a coach in between. I also talk about kind of using motion, like in golf, you know, hitting in front of a blast monitor that gives you all these data and things. I think it's important to know how to use that And and we can easily overwhelm an athlete by giving them too much information about their movement and things like that. You need a coach to translate that into usable cues or information for the athlete, for sure.
0: Interesting. So uh, why don't you tell us uh, what's your, what's your projects for the future? Is there anything that you want to tell people about stuff that we can look forward to to hearing from you now that you, well, you just got this book out. But what? <laughs> Yeah. People always do
1: that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they do that
0: to you, Todd. Yeah. When's the next get, book? Come on. As soon as you get out,
1: what's the next? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I think we talked about it at the start. So I, I have um, my podcast, Perception Action Podcast as well. So I have some things I want to do with that kind of continuing to explore some of these ideas and, and, um, you know, talk, we have these kind of group things we do journal clubs, I call them, um, you can see them on YouTube. So I, I want to do that. Um, in terms of the constraints, and I think, you know, the, I think this is going to help a lot kind of Vance's ideas. There's a series that as Rutledge is doing, the constraints led approach to, and there's a book on golf now. Um, so I'm writing, Randy Sullivan and I are writing one on baseball. So the specific examples of how you use constraints in specific sports. So there's a series. So that's the next one I have to I do. And then I eventually do have a follow-up for, Plan for this one to get into kind of building on this to how you know you move even more you know this is basically the start of how you learn to move how do you really optimize your movement and, oh cool and, yeah so like so kind of like that question you asked you know how do you use variability when you're super high level athlete <laughs> um, what do you use it for those kind of questions for sure
0: cool yeah. uh, so we can find you at the perception action podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a website associated with that too. Where can we find you on Twitter? So my Twitter name, weird name is shaky <laughs> Um,
1: if you can look at, but if you go to perceptionaction.com, actually everything's there, the, the, the links to the book on Amazon, the podcast and all my social media things. Yeah. So listen,
0: listen to follow uh, Rob on Twitter. He's got tons of great information all the time. Perception action podcast, get the book. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thanks Todd. It was my pleasure. Really enjoyable discussion.
0: Cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Better Movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to toddhargrove.substack.com and become a subscriber.